I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Art Attack with your host, PhD, professor, intellect, mind-altering brainiac, wordsmith, historian, out of the art historian context, into the historian context, and just wonderful, delightful, it just incredible human being. This is Lizzie Daston, ladies and gentlemen. And myself, who cares, Justin Bua, schlub, <laughs> whatever, or just clandestine artist. That was the loveliest introduction ever. I want to take you everywhere I go. Thank you for that. Yep. That's how I do it, Lizzie. And we are so excited about today's episode. It's one of our favorite artists. And also, it is sponsored by Ballsy, which is a baltastic company. Mm. And it's all about care for penis-owning individuals. And we have a special promotion for you guys. You should definitely check out... Ballwash.com. Sounds so weird coming from Lizzie I've never right said ball so many times in my life. We should yet. get paid extra <laughs> just because you said balls that many times, and they don't understand how important it is that Lizzie keeps it. <laughs> like, just she's just so moral about her verbal skills and her I'm word choices. I'm so hard right now. But so that's why you need to do the ad, because <laughs> it's <know>. authentic. <laughs> so go to ballwash.com. And this is a great gift for Valentine's Day. There are promotional gift sets. And if you enter in the code ARTATTACK20, then you'll get 20% off. Now that's ARTATTACK20. 20, exactly. Okay. So ARTATTACK, all in caps, 20. Right. And there are lots of fun products ball wash, not to be confused with nut rub, and definitely to be used in tandem with. Sack spray. <laughs> now I'm gonna, that sounded amazing coming from you. And I will tell you this, guys. This is the honest truth of the matter. I use it, Lizzie. It's refreshing. Your balls get really clean. Your baloniuses, your scrotum, your sacadiliac gets super duper clean. The type of clean that's like <laughs> type of clean. Of course, if you're a hairy person down below, you will not get that. You'll get more of a. <laughs> so it's really important and it really does work. And I know this is like, it sounds ridiculous and it sounds silly, but it's actually a good product. So, uh, yeah, pick it up. It's your most, well, for those who have these body parts, it's your most sensitive skin. And so we have to treat our skin with respect. And absolutely. also if you hope that somebody is going to interact with this part of your body, then maybe it should smell good. Even if it's you interacting with your own body or body. Let's be <laughs> honest, true. guys. It's nothing wrong with that. Uh, everybody does it. And if you interact with your own balls and you play with them while you do that, that's your own <laughs> business. Who cares? Let's but talk about Whistler now. Yeah, so anyway, guys, who cares? Uh, let's get to the real heart and soul of this discussion, which is James Abbott McNeil Whistler. I'm going on a, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, so just let me go. Don't try to wrangle me. Don't talk to me right now. I'm in a zone. <laughs> James Abbott motherfucking McNeil Whistler was a goat. He was a goat. He was an absolute real true artist. This guy was born in 1834, I believe, right around there. And he's from Lyle Springfield. So he's a. let's not forget this. He's an American. 
perhaps an expat, but an American in the beginning. He even lived in this crummy town that is awesome, that I love, but people, you know, I've heard people consider it crummy, but I hitchhiked to this town, Springfield, Massachusetts. I was up at school right by there uh, for a while, and I would go to Springfield, and, uh, you know, a lot of people would say it was crummy, but I had a lot of fun there, and I thought it was great, and it's probably really, really amazing now, but I couldn't even imagine when Whistler lived there. So he was moved all around. Then his father, did you know this, was hired by Nicholas I, the czar, no, hired for what? Hired because he was an engineer, an automotive engineer, and he hired him to go to Russia. So he brought his whole family over there. So he had a job working for the railroads in Russia. So then he went to uh, he went to Paris. This is getting a little autobiographical, but I ha- you have to know this because I don't want to talk about the work with talk without talking about him because he is a real deal, true artist. And the reason is, is because of his life experience. Oftentimes, if you're an artist and you're just living in an ivory tower, you're not going to have that life experience. Well, let me tell you about this guy. He's in Paris or London at the time, and he writes to his father, I want to be an artist. I don't want, you know, I really hope you accept that. A lot of other people have done that as a career, and that's what I want to do. Because he was a little bit of a troubled kid. His dad didn't write him back because he died of cholera. He was he and and lucky the family had just moved out of there, so his dad died. So he's a little kid now with no father, and he is painting and drawing all the time. He goes to West Point. I'm just going to get him up to when he's an artist, if that's okay. He go. Did you know he went to West Point? I did. Okay. Well, then chime in if no, you know. No, you about, said okay, no, you're okay. on a roll. Don't okay, chime good, good. in. Okay, good. <laughs> now, see, I'm taking back what I said. Uh, so he goes to West Point gets in trouble, gets kicked out, you know, and in the meantime, he becomes like, what are those things? Uh, the guys who draw graphs for the for the military, like the islands and maps, they draw maps. Oh, contour maps. Yeah, contour maps, right. So he was a contour map artist, you know, and he learned certain skills in, in school and in the military, and then eventually, uh, you know, got out of that, but really knew that he wanted to be an artist. And so because he was doing the contour maps, I think those were done in etchings, and he got very facile in etching. And so not to zoom ahead, but just to tell you to open up the the state to curtains right now, he's the greatest etcher of all time. I'm so sorry to tell you that. I'm going to close the curtains on that thought. <laughs> the only other etcher who was on par with him was Rembrandt. Those two, in my opinion, and that's a crazy thing to say because there's a million billion artists who are amazing. James Mc. Abbott McNeil Whistler was the greatest etcher besides Rembrandt in the history of the world. That's insane to say that, but I'm saying it very strongly. And a lot of reason was because he had such a technical facile, you know, facility with his skill set. He was just such a great technician. And then he became a great, very, very good draftsman. He studied with a lot of people. We won't go into all the people he studied with, but he was very academically trained. Then he had that weird training in maps, contour maps, you know, and all the etching there. So he's, and by the way, he got his tools. He stole them from his friend who was a dentist. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> no. No, he did. He had, he had stolen That's tools. That's funny. <laughs> and so he was this incredible artist who had a lot of angst and a lot of pain and a lot of moving around and sickness in his family and death. And so... uh he was going through a lot emotionally, and he knew, but he knew he wanted to be an artist. And of course, his mom wasn't into that. Moms out there, 
just be a little open. You never know. You might get a whistler. So his mom was not, he was very closed off and wanted something like that he could do that he could actually make money, much like my grandfather was to me when he was like, I don't think you should go into art as a career. Totally get it. But he persevered, moved to Paris, and that's kind of when he started going off. And he spoke French fluently and Russian and English. So that was really a good reason for him to go to Paris is because he already spoke the language and he had such a command over it. He was able to navigate the and socialize. That was a really thorough, very helpful biography of Whistler. And in listening to you talk about him, now I understand the context of his cosmopolitanism because right. you mentioned that he's American. He expatriated. He spent the majority of his career in England. And he was trying to appeal to both audiences. And I think that before, again, we talk about the work, I need to situate us within the moment because we are in a big schism in America between artists who are looking inward, trying to understand and aestheticize what it means to be an American, and then others who are looking externally abroad to Europe and trying to emulate that motif, that schema, and trying to situate themselves there. And so Whistler is an interesting case study because on the one hand, he is American and he is very disruptive to European trends. But on the other hand, he's living in Europe and he doesn't really self-identify as an American anymore. And so I think these the this panoply of influences that you mentioned in his biography, they really do inform the work itself. So he was born in 34, but he really starts to be become prolific in the 60s and the 70s, so 1860s, 1870s. And from 1870 until 1900 is a period in American history called the American Renaissance. So if we think about what's happening, we have the Civil War that really erupts in 1863. And in 1865, that was the assassination of Lincoln. And this is a gigantic moment in our history. Let's think about this. First of all, when we have the American Revolution, anybody who is considering themselves American, they're fighting cohesively against a common enemy. And then all of a sudden, these ideological questions come up. What does it mean to have an American character? What does it mean to have an identity? Who are we as a nation? And now the fighting becomes inward toward ourselves. And that's when we have a really big fissure between who Americans consider themselves and what America can potentially become. And so the Civil War was very divisive, really polarizing, and determinant of what America would eventually manifest as. So this is a big moment where we're fighting ourselves, we're trying to figure out who it is that we are, and then in 1865, when our president, who abolished slavery, and he really was forging this new character, he becomes assassinated, so too was the American optimism that we really built for ourselves in separating from England. And so the reason I emphasize this so much is because this burgeoning character is really central, and it manifests in the art too, and I think that's why people like Whistler are trying to grapple with what it means to live in this country, to identify with some of its character traits, but not really all because they haven't quite come into focus. And I think that was all super smart uh, and very, really 
right on, spied on, uh, spot on. Spite uh, sp- on, I like spi- that. It's like Spider-Man <laughs> uh, saying right on. Spite on. You can see him saying that to <laughs> Superman. So, you know, it was interesting because I feel like Whistler was a bit of an opportunist in terms of like his identity, obviously, right? So he identified with this confederate thing but he didn't want to live in the states he loved europe he was a total expat but at this but he he wanted he wanted the best of both worlds so if it was going to make him look good then he went for it look he's not above these are human beings guys with egos and who can be narcissistic i don't know how he was uh, I know he was a dandy. Wait, I know how he was. He was incredibly narcissistic. His right. signature was a butterfly with a big uh, stinger. Mm-hmm. And I think that indicates the duality of the aestheticized art that he made, which is really lovely and elegant, and then the ornery personality that we know that he had. Yeah, you and you could, you know, you can feel that in his work. Perhaps he is haughty, uh, but also remember he was a dandy. He dressed really well. He was really into the looks. I have, there's one photograph where he's posing where I'm like, oh my God, he is the quintessential artist. And he really is, you know? So he has, he has that side of him, the narcissistic, haughty, egotistical side. And I don't believe that uh, Corbet didn't have that. I feel like Corbet had that also by his, uh, by the history and also by his paintings. And he was a huge fan of Corbet. Now I'm not saying he was a fan of his personality, but he was a fan of his art. He was a he was an interesting artist, uh, Whistler, because he was a little bit of a uh, impressionist and an anti-impressionist and a romantic painter, like and a naturalist. He was all of those things. He he painted these uh, characters that you said like were very elegant and beautiful, and he was influenced by Japanese artists like Hiroshige and Hokusai. Uh, so we have to. You know, we look at his work, and he's he's drawing from a bunch of areas. He was a guy who used browns and blacks. The Impressionists, you know, made them poisonous. They poisoned the idea of browns and blacks. Idiots, by the way. Insane to do that, with the exception of Degas, because I think he did really use a lot of black. But anyway, but he he had his own formula, that he extracted a little bit from Corbet, a little bit from Jean-Dominique Ang, because he also really believed in line. That was a very Eugene Delacroix idea. Remember that? I mean, sorry, Jean-Dominique Ang idea, which is really a Jacques-Louis David idea, because Ang's teacher is David, the neoclassicist, so his ideas are part neoclassicist. Oh, wait a minute. Let's take a spoonful of neoclassicism, add, him to a, add it to a dash of Impressionism, and to a dash of really masterful painting with a little bit of sprinkle of Japanese woodblock woodblock prints like Hiroshigi. And what do you have? You have James McNeil Whistler with his own story. So he's painting also, not only is he painting great subject matter like the Thames River, you know that whole series he did? Oh, I do. Oh, yeah. yeah, I know you're (laughs) going to wax poetic on it. We're going to talk about that later. Okay, great. But not only is he doing all of that, but he's, 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 He's blending it up so much, you have no idea what he's doing. He's got hidden secret weapons, I call them, of other artists and other movements that are infused in what comes out on the other side as 
one of the greatest painters that, uh, that's ever lived and yeah. greatest artists. I, I love that you are kind of identifying the ecosystem of influence because he is a master of line. He also is a fantastic colorist and he's interested in Japanism, as you say, which is more about determining the subject matter of the work in one diagonal of the piece, that you don't have an all-over composition. And an, and an example of an all-over composition would be Pollock. Every inch of Pollock's canvases are equally activated with his drips. I don't think it's even fair to have a Pollock reference okay. when we're talking I was about just Whistler. Using, oh. It doesn't matter. You can't even use it in this context because it it completely like drowns out any any validity of what no, you're saying. No, it doesn't. It yes, just it does. emphasizes my point where every single inch of any of an abstract expressionist paintings, especially Pollock's, they are equally activated by the aesthetic. What regardless of what you feel of the aesthetic, the canvas is activated um, yeah, equivalently. I, I know. It's just language is so interesting in that way. Like the second you started bringing up Pollock as a analogy to <laughs> Whistler, it was like, I just had to You just to got block. real aggressive. You no, saw red. Not, no, not even aggressive. <laughs> I didn't turn red. I just got, I had to block. I was like, I have to talk about that. That's important That's to talk That's about. Okay. But in Japanese prints, Often the composition will be bifurcated by either a tree. If you're looking at Japanese women bathers, there's a really famous Hiroshika ukiyo-e print that is of that design, or it's just empty space. And with Whistler, he also utilizes that kind of design. And I think when you mention line, that comes from Angla, but it also comes from Japanese aesthetics because there's a heavy emphasis on contour lines, which are not found in nature, and they automatically flatten the space. And so Whistler is moving toward a modern aesthetic. And I thought it was it was interesting when you said, but he creates his own story because he actually denies storytelling in his work. He is creating a story, but a story about aesthetics. Right, because his whole credo is art, art for, for art's sake. sake. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. So when we have the painting of his mother, for instance, that is commonly regarded as Whistler's mother, although he didn't title the painting, that was just one that's kind of trickled down in the zeitgeist, that is not a sentimental painting. It's not a painting about his warm, loving relationship with his mother there's another expat at the same time who identified this theme of mothers and children in her work, and that's Mary Cassatt. And those paintings are fantastically twee mm -hmm. and very, very sentimentalized. And we see the warmth and the vulnerability and the, the connection in all of her figures. And so her figures mostly include mothers. But here we have a mother who is a form. She is not this person who emits great warmth. We don't feel any kind of reciprocity in the relationship. She is a person who's sitting down and notice if you're looking at the painting that all of the narrative and the, the well, all of the action in the painting is localized to the bottom diagonal of the work. And so that is an homage to Japanese woodblock prints. And initially he wanted her to stand but it took too long for him to sketch out her body and her back started to hurt and so he had her sit. So that's the only anecdotal narrative that we have. Really, it is an arrangement of forms. It's a balance of tonal harmony and it's a, an aesthetic exercise. It's about mood over storytelling. And that was something that was not, definitively was not happening in America. 
in American art at this time, art that's a lot more locally centered, it's about these, it's about lionizing story and moral compunctions. And what does it mean to identify with nationhood? Where is your loyalties? It's about that kind of character. And Whistler is like, no, no, I'm just going to paint an evocative mood. Mm -hmm. And the mood is my subject. The subject is not anything larger than that. And I think Whistler's Mm -hmm. mother is a great example of how people misrepresent Whistler in thinking that it's sentimental because it's his mom, when really it's a figure. It could have been interchangeable. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That, those are uh, all very incredible, cogent points. Really, are even the Pollock ones? No, that's terrible. <laughs> that was a terrible point. But the point is, but the point is, if I might point you in the right direction, he was not a he was not a pointillist. He uh, he was. He really uh, was technical enough. Uh, he was a bit of a he was a bit of a uh, really good painter. He's a solid painter. You know, it, was a lot, it wasn't a lot of solid, solid, solid painters. I mean, I would say his his draftsmanship level was uh, way above average. Uh, he wasn't a Jean Dominique Ang or even a Degas, but he was very, very competent and very good to be able to articulate himself eloquently. Uh, that painting of his mother. Also, compositionally, it's very, uh, with the curtain coming in in the front, very Japanese, and the etchings in the back. He always seems to have these, and it's a compositional device as an artist. We, we use it sometimes. You have a square or a horizontal, and you cut it in half. And what does he cut in half? Two etchings in the background of his paintings, right? One of them, by the way, is a representation of his own etching. Did you know that? I did. Yeah, and it's beautiful. That etching that he did of the Thames River is super stunning. He was just a, such a good draftsman and etcher. But even in his painting, he's able to compositionally balance everything out. So, you know, the story, we love to project our own stories onto that. That's why we love the sentimentality. That's why it's one of the most famous. I would say also, let's not forget, guys, that this is not uh, quintessential Whistler, right? Whistler, to me, is more quintessential the river, the boats, the grittiness, the grime. This is really not. So it's interesting that this becomes one of the top five most famous paintings in the history of art. Art history. This is top five. That's crazy. That's insane. Something about it, like American Gothic, Grant Wood's Gothic, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, Van Gogh's Starry Night. It's right up there with all of them. And it is the quintessential American painting. That's the irony. He doesn't do it in America. He didn't even do it in America. And it's like as powerful as Rockwell's Thanksgiving dinner or Grant Wood's American Gothic. Yet, he's not even relating to America in a way. So that's what we talk about identity. We're going back to the conversation about identity. Oh, I'm an American when it's you convenient. I'm a Frenchman when it's convenient. I really relate to Russia. He was identifying with different, you know what I mean? He was. Was he doing it opportunistically or do we as historians position him as an American artist? I wasn't his friend then, <laughs> but if I were, I would believe he used his title and his many places that he lived to identify what was 
you know, going to move him ahead. And, you and know, I agree with you because he was a fantastically litigious dude. And there was another painting that he did that is more in line with the iconic Whistler work that I think you're talking about. And it is a beautifully evocative piece. And there are lots of sparkles of light. We can't really localize ourselves. It's not obvious where we are, what we're looking at, but it feels like there is a loose compositional middle ground, foreground, background. Maybe we're on some kind of body of water. Perhaps there is something sparkling in the sky. I will tell you that in a second. I'm waiting. I'm like, what? I know. So Whistler released it. He showed it in London. And there was this art critic at the time named John Ruskin. And Ruskin was a big supporter of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. So those paintings are all about the narrative, the moral force, the lessons that we're supposed to glean from the paintings themselves. And so these works are integers of story. And so Ruskin was comfortable with that aesthetic. And here he is looking at a painting that is not identifiable. It's ambiguous. And Ruskin writes in this media outlet that it looks like Whistler flung a pot of paint in the public's face. And Whistler was really pissed off, and he sued Ruskin for libel. And it didn't really help his case that when they displayed the painting for the jury, that they put it, they displayed it upside down. Because that, I think, <laughs> emphasized Ruskin's point that we couldn't tell what we were looking at. And Whistler's counterargument was, who cares? Paintings do not have to be narrative stories. Mm. And for him... There was a loose reference point. It's called the Falling Rocket. And it was a memory, an evocation, an echo of something that Whistler experienced. And all of those little sparkling pieces of orange Mm -hmm. embers Mm -hmm. are really the residue of a rocket that had just been released. And so once Mm. you know that, it kind of guides your eye in decoding what it is that you're seeing. But that doesn't matter. Whistler, as his credo, Art for Art's Sake was championing that art doesn't have to be a window onto the world. Art doesn't have to be logical or academicized. Art can be a mood, a feeling. Mm -hmm. And art is meant to just draw out that feeling from its viewers. And the, the court case bankrupted him. He won, but he only won a farthing, which is just a collection of pennies. So that was a huge insult, but... I use that as an example to agree with you that probably he was using his American identity thoughtfully or strategically to have an identity in all places. Right, because this really does look like the quintessential American art, right? And, And then just the mythology of time, we basically made that painting into something that it might not even be. You know what I mean? Because... That's what we do, and we get it handed down through history, and this is where we stop the buck, and we say, maybe that's not the most important painting ever. No, I'm kidding. But um, (laughs) this is where we rewrite the history. (laughs) But you know how it goes. It goes down that way, and so people grow up with it, and it's taught in art history class. But look, the end of the day, it's a really freaking beautiful painting, and he's a really, really, really wonderful painter. Um, Just going back to his etchings, though, uh, as great of a painter as he was, uh, he's not my my favorite, favorite painter, but like I said, I think he's my favorite etcher. And partly because he really understood the process. Like when he would do a drawing, he would go right to life with his block 
and his dental equipment, and he would etch into the tar, and you know the the copper would come out, and I'm sure he was pretty facile in the actual process of it. Take the roller, put it in ink with the Brer's ink over that. Take it, you know, put the paper on it, roll it through the thing. The whole, you know, I'm sure he knew all of that, but the actual studies were technical and grimy, so it felt raw, and you don't really see that a lot. A lot of etchings and at the time let's 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 really think about this the time he was doing etchings etchings were so out of style they were so out of fashion they were used for only illustrations or just just not really important stuff he brought etchings back to the art world it had been 16 something when rembrandt was killing the game Think about Gustave Doré. These are the guys that were etchers. There's a whole period there where etching is not really art for art's sake. It's not just art. It's illustrative. It's telling a story. You see what I'm saying? Now, all of a sudden, Whistler, yeah, he makes a painting that becomes one of the top five most famous paintings in the history of the world, but he also puts etching back into the consciousness of our minds that this is an art form again why because it's real it is art it's not just a quick plain air study that's okay or an illustration for whatever no it's art his command of the human figure is quite excellent it's not stiff it's not robotic it's got beautiful movement his characters are really real you feel the grit in them the the, the loneliness in them the pathos on their face and the backgrounds, give me a break. He's incredible with backgrounds. The way he's able to show a house, a river, a sailboat with a broken oar, and the wind hitting the sails, you could feel his etchings. Even with his portraiture with his etchings, same thing, you could feel them. Remember, they were the size of an iPhone, some of these things. They were the size of an iPhone, and he's drawing it with his friend's dental equipment that he stole. The guy's an absolute master. I want to drop the mic. I want to throw the mic. I want to beat the shit out of this mic. Because <laughs> Nate, James McNeil Whistler is so good, he makes a motherfucker want to quit. And I'm not going to quit, guys. I'm not going to quit. Please don't quit. We but would you all know be what I mean? Yeah. Some artists inspire you where you get tickly feelings and you're like, oh, my God. This this guy, this guy makes me want to paint. Whistler makes you kind of not want to because he's so <laughs> he's like a really great artist. And and you know what? We don't really know his story. We say he's litigious. We say he's narcissistic. He seems like a dandy old fellow. Maybe we would have hated him if he came into the studio and we talked to him, and we would have been like, "Damn, that dude was arrogant." But we'll never know. All we know is how good he was. That's true. Well, I do think we know that he wore his ego like a cloak, but also he was a fantastically talented painter. And one last thing that I think we need to mention is that the way that he titled his work was yes. very prescient because he would call things nocturnes, composition, Symphonies. Symphonies, exactly. And so it's much more musical, right. and it's this amalgam of various ways of processing information. It isn't purely visual. Now it's also auditory. Right. And that was... Before even Kandinsky did. And so we will credit other artists as we have on this show for introducing musicality in their work. But Whistler did it first. Yeah, he really did. He was 
He was incredible. And anytime I revisit artists to do this podcast, just to kind of freshen up, uh, get a little nip and tuck with my mind in terms of the <laughs> art history, I once in a while go, wow, that person was important. Sometimes I go, wow, that person wasn't that important. I was really, I must have been really young or naive or whatever. But this was one of those reawakenings. I had an internal soulful res- renaissance with Whistler. I re-looked at his work and I went, wow, he was really, really one of the greatest of all time. I agree. And speaking of freshening up, just to wrap up, we want to thank our sponsors, Ballsy, yeah. for freshening up the mail form. And mm-hmm. please remember to use the code ARTATTACK20 for 20% off discount. Fun for Valentine's Day. And leave us a review anywhere you can, iTunes, whatever, wherever. We love uh, what you guys think of the show, uh, especially if it's five-star and positive. But seriously. (laughs) uh, But Lizzie, uh, one more thing. I got to go wash my balls. Talk to you later. Bye.